than historically why paganism played such a strong role in the history of the world as well as the history of the Jewish people and of course we tried to make reference to Thackenheim's work on this problem as to paganism as a modern problem but last week we came back to our original focus which was to understand why this non-Jew James Mitchum saw it as so important to write about Jews and Judaism and we, we tried to speculate there's two ways of going, going about this issue one way is by studying his biography who really is as a person what influenced him that's one way I began by speculating and trying to understand what might have impacted upon this man and we had looked at the dates when the book was written 1965 must have started in the early 1960s and of course we made the point that the Eisman trial which captured the world attention would have captured his sensitive eye to the Jewish people on a twofold level first of all of course because the Jews were trying to do it right they were trying to have a trial of the most notorious of people Eichmann in an appropriate just fashion the world at that point in the early 60's had forgotten about the Holocaust the pain was too great the responsibility too, was too overwhelming they felt guilty perhaps that's the reason why all of a sudden as we mentioned Eichmann burst into the scene and now Israel and the Eichmann trial is front page New York Times did that capture the heart and mind of James Mishnah we'll have to see that in a moment then another issue that might have had a role over here was during the 50's of course Yigal Yadin who was the primary excavator archaeologist of Israel was discovering Masada he wrote a book in the early 60's I'm not sure exactly the year I tried to find out today but I never just look it up he wrote a book on Masada and again that was viewed as an incredibly romantic quote unquote event in Jewish history what made it so romantic? Massacre. the massacre exactly Jews dying as heroes now the first approach was Jews dying as heroes suicide right was a very romantic notion people afterwards kind of questioned this maybe they shouldn't have died was that the right halachic answer or not the right halachic answer you're surrounded by pagans you have 900 people what should you do they're not going to necessarily kill you they'll take you as a slave is it right to commit suicide is that what you should be doing halachically or should you perhaps give in and hope for some kind of reprieve on some level or other we do know that hundreds of thousands of Jews were in fact taken as slaves to Rome and were almost immediately redeemed by the host Roman Jewish community which means that they had been there for years, decades and hundreds of years before successful, powerful, historians are reasoning backwards if Jews were able to be redeemed so quickly there must have been a very strong, politically powerful, wealthy community that redeemed these Jews so maybe that was the right answer taken as a slave, go into Rome and then get redeemed so that question is being, was being dis- discussed. What year, around what year is that? Masada? Or, or Masada, which Masada? Masada. 70 after the common era. After the common era, sure. So now you guys writing about this, and again it was a very romantic story of Jews dying for their principles. 
Josephus becomes very popular. Now again, that might have been the grist for his novelist's eye. Because, again, notice this book is about a tale. What's a tale? It's a mound. What's a mound? It's layers upon layers upon layers of Jewish history. And he uncovers the layers, and he sees a different level of Jewish history. That's the basic structure of this work. So again, with all this archaeological digging going on, and if in fact the Agadim does burst onto the scene, then that would explain that this book he has a great idea. Let me archaeologize, so to speak, all Jewish history. I get a mound, I go back 10,000 before the common era, and then I strip away layers against the backdrop of modern day Israel. So I intersect over here, modern day Israel, history, archaeology, ideas, values, all of that is what I think Judaism is about. Why am I writing about Judaism? It's a fascinating story. What's the story? The story is of Eichmann, justice, Jews, persecution, Holocaust, state of Israel, and again, this is when Israel was David rather than Goliath. So I have all of that going on. So it seems like a great story to tell. Not from a historical point of view. He's not a historian. One can raise the very same question. Why did Paul Johnson in the 80s write about history of the Jews? That's the question that we have to ask. But he's an academician. So he thought this is a, uh, an appropriate ac- academic work to write. He's a novelist. This has all, the Jews have all the great ingredients of a great novel. And the proof of it is in the pudding. Forty years later, 35 million copies in print, five languages translated. Extraordinary. Extraordinary work. It is a great story. So we want to try to understand <clears throat> what is it that motivated him to write this work. So what I've said so far is that two historical events that he probably experienced. One, the Ottoman trial, two, the state of Israel, and its archaeological dig is what brought this book about. Right? Maybe. Maybe. Big time, maybe. Now, but I want to look at the last two pages, which I Xeroxed for you, and I did not have enough copies, hopefully. <laughs> My record consistent. So, but some of you have the books, so you probably, I probably have enough copies. Oh, well. What about the book? And we want to look at these last two pages. This is uh, Michener. The Michener, right. The source by Michener. Well, I have extras? Uh, I wasted? Uh, oh, oh, no. <laughs> Blew the call. Oh, my goodness. Okay, thank you. Uh, what year did his book come out? 1965. 64-65, right. Now, I'm not concerned. If you remember when we began this book, I told you what I'm not concerned about. I really don't care about the modern story of Israel that he presents. Completely irrelevant to me. Right? His love story, Jew, non-Jew, Christian, I'm not concerned about that at all. But let's look at the very top of the page, 908, my, my version, the last two pages. You have over here one of the modern people whose name over here is Eliav. Eliav, I'll just go back to the diagnosis if you don't have for one second. Eliav was alone in the city he had fought for. And he walked by a twisting paths and alleys down to the foot of the English stairs to make a pilgrimage which in recent years had come to mean much in his life. 
I had like 21 separate flights to be climbed and he began his ascent. And then he goes through all of the stages, all these stairs, stages, 1 through 21. Father comes to the top. Beyond the fortress which he had fallen as miraculously as any in the Torah, he could see once more the flawless land whose sweeping hills moved in majesty and whose towering clouds so twisted in, a viol- in violence above the lake hallowed to so many. The Kinetic. Right? All of this. Then he raised that, then as he raised his head, he discovered from an unexpected quarter an answer to his question. For he looked down upon the Tiberius, that insignificant the precious town which had given the world both the Talmud and the Bible. Outside the top of the page, the old crusader walls he could discern, the tomb of Moses Maimonides, of whom he said, for most of Moses there was none like Moses. Which is great that Mitchell knew this phrase. It's a very internal phrase. I mean, how much did he have to read to know that about, about Rambam? It's amazing. Eliab thought, I hope I find one-tenth the wisdom he did. And he promised himself that this afternoon, Pesarissi would pause to light a candle at the tomb. He died in part of the great process of the reached the very ground of the tomb ביאזרו, now, referencing back, Abiyakibab is the father of the law. So keep that point in mind. Because we're trying to find what is the key critical principle of Mishnah. But there was a beginning to an outcry, both in Israel and in the world, against the arbitrary structure of contemporary Judaism. What's he worried about now? Suppose that about being unable to marry because of an outward law 4,000 years old. She's not allowed to marry a Kohen or a non-Jew, right? Then we have Eliyah forbidden to marry because of the Kohen legalities. Zadman's divorce not legal because of modern thinking American rabbis cannot be trusted. Reform conservative. So really he's going beyond the points that I made before. He's going to the matrix of Jewish, modern Jewish thinking saying, what's going on over here? All of these problems are happening. Internal questions. Right, internal questions. Correct. Good. So now, let's see if he's seeing this as against the backdrop. His internal questions about the Jews are, are fascinating. Because again, why would a non-Jew be concerned about this issue? Simon's divorce cannot legal because it was a reform rabbi. The German woman found the Jews that you had the course of her life and of her eye and her life with children who were not accepted as Jews. Right? The Indian Jews, her conversion wasn't good. The Indian Jews who were disbarred. And Leon Burkus, who could not work as a, as a Jew. Leah was really worried by such rigid crystallization because he had read enough history to know that if it is, if it were continued, the revolt of the Kippur and the people like Ilana and Vera could not, could be damaging. In any other nation, a typical official like Eliab would find himself out against the priests, who sit upon such inf- irrefrangible law. And even he had begun to echo the warnings presided by like Elkan, this nigger has crap. So now the whole thing's falling apart is what he's saying over here. In the 60s, this was an issue. The Langer case, if you remember the Langer case, which was a woman who married a, Jew, a non-Jew who was converted a day before the wedding, who went to the mikveh, who didn't even know the Shema when he emerged from the waters, was he a Jew or not a Jew? She leaves him two or three months later, she comes to Israel, and she marries a guy named Langer. And then they have two kids. I think they were twins. Two kids. What happens in the late 50s, early 60s? These kids are now 20 years old and they want to marry. But they're mamzerim. Are they mamzerim or not mamzerim? What's a mamzer? 
an illegitimate child from an incestuous relationship, if he, the former husband, was in fact converted, then what? He's a mamzerim. But if his conversion was not a good conversion, then he's a non-Jew, and then she's not, you cannot marry a non-Jew, halakhically. Right? We all following this? So therefore he's given a non. So the whole question is, what was the substance of this person's conversion? This question rocked the Jewish world. Rocked the Jewish world. Every rabbi was asked, what do we do with this situation? Which was again, now it's 20 years, 22 years earlier. What do we do now? Why did this personal, individual case become Langer? a national... Because case? she insisted that my kids are not mom's name. And we have to decide now. Uh, but we've heard many stories where a sensitive orthodox rabbi would simply say to her, oh, very simple, that conversion was no good, move on. That's what Rabbi Gorin did. And yet, the, but the Orthodox establishment, because it's Israel, and law is writ large. She's in Israel now, and law, issues in Israel in general become magnified, writ large. Similarly, you have this other great case of, uh, again, similar case, where you have a Jewish person fought during the Holocaust, was chased by the Gestapo hid in a Carmelite monastery two or three years becomes a Carmelite monk and in 49-50 fights to the state of Israel goes back, because Carmelite, goes back to his monastery comes back to the and says I want to be I want to come into the Israel under the law of, of return as a Jew you're not a Jew you're a Carmelite monk no I am I am a Jew with a Christian ideology can I come in as, a, as an atheist? Yeah, atheism is a philosophy. You can be an atheist and come in as a Jew with an atheistic philosophy, but you cannot come in as a, as a Jew with a Christian philosophy. Says, I am Jew. So you can come in and just naturalize. That's not a problem. No, I want to come in as a Jew with a different philosophy of life. So this issue, Brother Daniel, was the name of the case, was again a halachic issue which people all over the world were asked, the rabbis, of course, said, how would you answer the question halakhically? No, yes, 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 yes. Why, yes, yes, yes. If you're born a Jew, you're always a Jew. Correct. So the rabbis said yes. But legalists and philosophers and others said no. You cannot be a Jew with a Christian philosophy. Either a Jew or you're a Christian. It's a satira, it's a contradiction in terms. can't be both. What is the way that the others approach it? Rabbi said yes. Major article by Rabbi Lichtenstein on this topic, which is very, very enlightening, 1963 in the, the Periodical Judaism. Wonderful article because it elucidates Jewish identity. What makes a Jew a Jew? Can you ever lose your Jewishness? You will all ask that question. If I ask you that question, no, you cannot. Oh, it's not exactly accurate. Really, you can. And that article elucidates where you can lose Kedushat Yisrael, your Jewishness. It's a long story. He would agree with the rabbis, but he does elucidate this notion that a Jew can lose Kedushat Yisrael, his Jewishness, at a certain period of time, and whatever the... Not to go into it right now. Yes, it's all, yes, Brother Daniel, it's in the deal if you'd like to borrow it, you can. Was he the son-in-law of Salvation? Yes, Rabbi was son-in-law, correct. Yes, sorry, Harvey? No, 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 just how you lose your Jewishness. 
Right? In three easy lessons, actually. <laughs> You'll see. So you read, it's a very good article to read. Somewhat technical, but it's a good article to read. Sorry? Now, so these issues really are rocking the Jewish world, but of no interest whatsoever to the non-Jewish world. Yet over here, in this last paragraph that was read, Mishnah is showing himself to be very sensitive, amazingly so, to the minutia of Jewish law. Who's married? Who's a Kohen? Who's not a Kohen? All these become issues. He's aware. But, Ilan Eliyav was not in any other country, nor could he ever be a typical official. He was a Jew, aware of the unique history of his people. They had survived persecution. So this is really the motivation of the book. His mission's awareness that the Jews are a unique people, living a unique history, and persecution. So we have two issues so far. As the Bushisa Rebbe knew only because their stern rabbis had kept the favor to the law and to the law. Law is a major theme in this book. If those who read the chapter on Sfat, you have a major battle between mysticism and law. What's going to preserve the Jewish people? This transcendental, metaphysical view of life, mysticism, Kabbalah, or a clear, structured, legal system. What's going to preserve Judaism is the question that he's dealing with right over here. So the Bajshu Rebbe is someone who actually is Hasidic and therefore Kabbalistic, but also he knew, understood the law. The stern rabbis had kept them to the law, and if now this law raised certain difficulties in these marital issues, to this very day you have these issues. Civil marriage issue is a, is a horrifying situation. This right issue has no constitution because nobody can agree. They don't have a constitution. Nobody can agree what the constitution should say in Israel. It's amazing. Fifty years later, there's no constitution. They can't agree on what should be the Bill of Rights, etc. So all these are still our issues. And if now this law raised certain difficulties, this, that was nothing new. It had always done so. The law need not be abrogated. What was needed by, was by some new leader to refight the 20th century, the battles of Yerak Akiba, for a second. It's amazing that he knows all of this. Is, has law not become frozen in the 20th century? That's the question. But strangely, but he's dealing with this. Law was humanized. I grew up today. And that would be a typical non-Jewish answer to this question. Orthodox Jews would not say law has to be humanized. We would say the law is humanized. It already is human. And within the law itself, there are modes of humanization. But that's the law has to be humanized by an external value system. That's a non-Jewish approach to this question. Right? Yeah, you're reading into what he's saying. He said, law must be humanized. We see that the, the halakha adapts to human need. So that is... That's, that's part of halakha. No, that's part of halakha. Right. Halakha automatically will react humanly because it's part of a halakha process, I would say. Unless the law has been frozen inappropriately. And here's an example. You have thousands of agunot. What's an agunot? A woman whose husband is lost at sea. Ground. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know what happened to him. Right? Sorry? Or it could be a husband who doesn't want to give her a divorce. I'm talking about divorce. Now, what happened in Auschwitz? 99% of people who went through Auschwitz died. But there were too many people who went through Auschwitz. So 1% of those 2 million. What's 1% of 2 million? Divided in half, men and women, let's say. If 100,000 women 
who survived Auschwitz, and we don't know, were their husbands those who were saved, escaped, survived, or were they killed in Auschwitz? So they have a hundred thousand women. Let's say half of them were of magical age. They come to the rabbis. Rabbi, I have a problem. I was married before, now what's my status? I'm an aguna. 50,000, minimum. Is it 1%? What, numbers, the numbers are not important. Okay, but Whatever numbers may be. No, only if it's one person. No, but it's mind-boggling. You think there's 100,000 women like that. 10,000 is still mind-boggling. Yeah, whatever the number may be. It could be higher because... The younger ones were the ones who more likely survived than the older people. The Nazis killed the older, worthless people, much worse than the younger people could work. So it might be higher than any, whatever maybe. Right. In a Nazi terminology, I'm saying. So now here you go. You go to, you go to Chief Rabbi Israel. What should I do right now? So of course, Rabbi Herzog says we have to find a way to save Agunot. We we can't live with them as living lives not married. Can't do it. Yerko Breish says, no, you can't risk Mamzerut. This husband may come back from Europe four years later, five years later, and find, here I am, all the kids in Mamzerim. What would you do, just do in that area? It happens. It does happen. You're saying it. And I heard a crazy story about a husband and a wife that were separated. Sure. And they both got married, had families, and then ran into each other later on. Absolutely happens. Yeah, yeah no, tons of kids. Yeah. But there's a lot of precedent for these issues, for these questions. Like Absolutely. The husband lost that C question and they right. came back. And right, so the question is, how far can the system bend? Can the law bend with its internal flexibility before it breaks? That's the question. So Rabbi Yoko Bright is saying, not too much. We can't bend too much. You have 10, 15, 20, 30,000 women over here. Each one has two, three, four kids after marriage. You're talking about 120,000 Don't risk it. Lose one generation, sorry, I apologize, but save the Jewish people. Rabbi Herzog said what you're saying. Even one woman should not remain in Aguna. So wait, so those are issues, social, human, legal issues that are rocking the Jewish people at this point. Let me just finish, right? So now, we need an Akira to solve these issues. Adjusting it to modern life as it once adjusted it to Roman. So Mitch's point is that Jewish law is not responding to modern life. But the law would continue. It's for only to keep Israel alive. So Mishnah sees Jewish greatness in the law. Where were the, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and the Moabites, the Phoenicians, the Syrians, the Rains, and the Hittites? Each had been more powerful than the Jews, yet each had perished and the Jews remained. We survived. Where was Marduk, the great god of the Babylonians, and Dagon of the Philistines, and Moloch of the Phoenicians? There have been mighty gods who struck terror in the hearts of men. They vanished and it was the conciliatory civil organ god of the Jews who not only persisted but who vitalized the two derivative religions. And God exercises power through the law. That's an amazingly sensitive insight for Mishnah to note. He understands Jewish law much more insightfully than most Jews. He's got it. So now, it was no mean thing to be a Jew and the custodian of God's law. For if his law was exacting, it was also ennobling. Now, obviously, reformed Jews would not say this. Conservatives would say this, but reformed Jews would not say this. They've done away with the law. And they've seen the ethics of the Jews as that which is ennobling. So reformed Jews are very ethical, but not legal, not halachic. Right? But he says, no, the law itself is ennobling. It's an amazing point. So, how would he get this sense if you were not watching all of these arguments about halacha? 
Langer case, and the, the Brother Daniel case, and this Aguna case. Interesting. It demands respect, if not blind obedience. There could be no larger task than thought, and is Eliav not Jay's Mishnah? Then, divide the people, divide the Jews of Israel and their more numerous cousins in America could share this vital law and responsibility for keeping it vital. He recalls a typical joke. The function of the American Jews is to send money to a German Jew in Jerusalem who forwards it to Polish Jews. The negative was the of Spanish Jews in the market to come to Israel. That was a cynical joke. But true. There was, no, there was more to it than that. On they left, John Cullian, who was the archaeologist, had asked in an easy Irish manner, Elon, why do you Jews make life so difficult for yourselves? At the time, he had thought of no reply. But having lost the for the Jewish reason, could marry her, and having been projected to the hardest responsibility, so life isn't meant to be easy, it's meant to be life. And no religion defended, so tenaciously, the ordinary dignity of the living. Salem and Lokim. He's got it. Judaism stressed neither an afterlife, an afterpunishment, nor heaven. What was worthy and good was here. On this day in Tzfat, we seek God so earnestly, Eliab reflected, not to find Him, but to discover ourselves. Again, an amazingly powerful, insightful statement. To find ourselves. What do you mean Judaism has need of stress and afterlife? It's not in the Bible. It's only Talmudic, rabbinic. So it's not stress. It is stress, though. In some versions, one could say of Judaism, you could find statements that would say that this is only a prosdor, a corridor, corridor to the afterlife. In some versions, but I would say that the majority of Jewish thinkers say live life, rabbinically saying that I see Yerushalmi, you have to give the Yerushalmi and every beautiful food you didn't eat. You have to enjoy life. God gave you life to enjoy. This is a wonderful world over here. So one can find both strains in Judaism, certainly, but during times of persecution, the notions of afterlife take on a much larger role. The Roman persecutions led to a very strong emphasis on the afterlife. That's a deny it, of course, but in any which case, but either a stronger or larger role depends upon social context. Nowadays, Jews don't think all that much of the afterlife, do we? How many rabbis are about Allah Haba? How many classes are given about Olam Haba? As opposed to... Only at funerals. At funerals, right. As opposed to Halakha. As opposed to Halakha. Halakha is this worldly. No, no, no. It's used as... It's tremendously used as a tool in the right wing. To cover up, you know, all the things that they can't answer. And okay, that okay, that's true. And they can't give a reason. Okay, okay, good. I'm not, it's I'm used, not being facetious. I mean, we know. We, we know you're being serious. We know that that's true. <laughs> that's of course true. But we're saying over here is that... It, a formal class is not given, but on halakha is done in tens of classes like every single day. Halakha, how to live life in this world. What berachot to say, and what to, how to pray, to pray, to fila, etc. So his point is, is well taken. And no religious resolution, the order you do it. Judaism is real stress in the afterlife. I mean, in certain contexts, yes, of course you're right. After punishment, no heaven, but was, where the good was here. From where he stood at that moment, you could see the spot in Tiberius where he blew up an English lawyer the streets of Tzvan in which he had used a machine gun the vase was behind him he would try to be the country that he had been a president who had passage of 40 learning how to read self-taught man who had become the legal master of his day a man who had 70 launched a whole new way of life who when the Romans finally executed by King Wei's flesh with happens a man 95 years old perhaps not legally Jew because he believed that he had sent from Sisera that's the famous Midrash that came from Sisera the Canaanite pagan a thousand years earlier right and it would be an interesting wiki interesting to trace midrashically why the rabbi said that came from Sisera a thousand years earlier 
Answer, maybe. Because we're not the Midrash. What's the other Midrash? The other Midrash on Bukhish Rofsim is that she slept, Ya'ya slept with him seven times. But it says, Shachav, seven times. It's not Shah, it's a Midrash. So why did the rabbis, A, we didn't say that she slept with him, but now they did say that, we want to justify sleeping with him because who came out eventually? Rabbi Akiva. So there, were, there was a social need. So why did the rabbis say that she slept with him again? Send the Peshat text. Why say that? Do you think of any reason? Who else slept with a pagan king that we had to justify? Esther. Esther. Right. So if Esther slept with a pagan king, which everybody accepts, if we want to show precedent for what Esther did and not guilty, right? You raise the question. Why did Esther allow to sleep with a pagan king? Die instead. And commit martyrdom. Why should he sleep with a pagan king? So perhaps one might say the rabbis said, no, Yael did it. And what resulted from it? And therefore, perhaps one might say that would be the rationale for this Midrashic train of thought. Right? So that's what Mishnah knew at all. So it's pretty good he knew that Midrash. Most Jews don't know that Midrash. That Sisra was the uh, forefather of Rabbi Akiva. That Lasidus General, whom Yael explained, was the temple. Who is the second God that when the Romans saw the Rizal of he goes on to say, Elijah, he's looking at that. Shema is Rabbi Akiva. And of course, interestingly enough, the original Lord of God is one, to die the long, well press of the word one. So, Mishnah ends his book of 900 plus pages on the Shema. Right? So now, what is the vision of this man? Law, survival, persecution, and the Shema. Should we say, with Rabbi Akiva playing prominent role. Another chapter over here, of course, is the Rabbi Akiva chapter, which again, if we had the time, it would be very interesting to read about Rabbi Akiva. And Tzfat plays a very cr- critical role over here. So those who read this chapter of Tzfat, he wants you to reflect back on Tzfat, reflect back on Abiyakiva, and see how these two chapters really serve as forerunners for his end. And speculatingly again, could one understand from these last two chapters, last two pages, what the book is really all about? What captivated... Mishnah. It may not have been the Ashman child. It may not have been Masada whatsoever, as we speculated at the very beginning, but simply his amazement with a Jewish law, the antiquity of Jewish law, because of the law and the Shema, and of course their self-sacrifice of Rabbi Akiva. He's the hero of the book, Rabbi Akiva, and he's the progenitor of the law. So is that the motivating vision behind this book? It's a good guess. I think both are very good guesses. He doesn't tell us. And now it's to even ask him. Right? He doesn't tell us what brought him to write this book. So there's three possibilities. One possibility is reading his autobiography, which he didn't write. He <laughs> may have trouble reading it. But you read his autobiography and find out what fascinated him about the Jews. And again, we did this with Mark Twain. We, we tried to find out what motivated Mark Twain to write his essay on the Jews. Number two is what historical event took place, Masada, Akron trial, that caught his attention, that brought to write this book. Number three, a more internal examination of perhaps the last two pages is what might give what we call the center of his vision. And that would be law, Shema, Bekiva, etc. Those are your three options. You can choose any one. Except your Well, I, I could. Right. Yeah. <coughs> exactly. I could have sworn when I was living in the Bronx, I was in shul in the Bronx a long time ago, <laughs> in the 60s. I was in shul Shabbos afternoon with my 
five-year-old niece. Uh-huh. And uh, this man had brought in, and apparently the rabbi was told about him, and all of a sudden the rabbi starts getting uh, uh, a very noisy speech. <laughs> And my little niece had asked me, why is he screaming, the rabbi? Why is he screaming? And uh, this was in the early 60s. You were telling me the book was written in 1965. Yeah. I could have sworn that this was mention of looking and observing. And, uh, Interesting. Well, okay. Good point. Anyway, that was book number two that we want to um, discuss. There's still three that we want to do. And perhaps next year, we'll see if it works out. We can go back to Paul Johnson. Ernest Vanderhaag and um, James Cahill. Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson was the archaeologist? No, that's uh, Ernest Vanderhaag. V-A-N-D-E-R-H-A-A-G. Called the Jewish Steve. That's uh, Vanderhaag, Paul Johnson, and Tom James. 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 James.